How is everyone doing? Another month, another Mentality Podcast episode. Following the previous one, it was great to hear that you enjoyed my chat with Kim about male friendships. The chat made me aware of different ways I could work on my male friendships. Also wanted to share some reflections based on the you know, opportunities that I had to meet some guys randomly across London at different hangouts. And I met these guys for the first time. And one thing that I've noticed and I really appreciate about them is that they're open and vulnerable. So I wanted to share and encourage you to continue to be vulnerable with people you trust and build those healthy friendships, those healthy relationships. So for those who haven't had the chance to listen to my conversation with Kim, do check it out. And also, if you're new to the podcast, or maybe not, you've been following for for some time, don't forget to hit the follow button and drop a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying the pod. A nice follow-up from the previous episode is we do all that self-work. We need to show some kindness to ourselves first. And this is the theme of today's episode, self-empathy. And I'm chatting to Andrew Bernard, aka Bernie, a masculinity and equality workshops facilitator. He's a director of Innovative Enterprise and Careers Week, author of The Ladder, a TEDx speaker and cyclist. And here's my conversation with Bernie. This is Mentality Podcast, where we have real conversations with real people about healthy masculinities. I'm your host, Lao Jokan, and throughout this podcast, we'll hear from a wide range of guests about the views and the experience of manhood. We'll look at the bits we should celebrate, but also its messy parts, while having a bit of a laugh. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Mentality Podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure and honor to have Andrew Bernard, or Bernie. It's great to have you on the podcast, and it would be great first maybe learn a bit about you and how do you end up working with boys on issues of masculinity? Thanks, Lau. It, it's an absolute delight to meet you. I started Innovative Enterprise in, well, 17 years ago. It was nothing to do with PSHE or kind of healthy relationships or anything like that. It, it was really about enterprise and actually the fact that I'd not be very nice to myself and I'd kind of worked myself into a very unhappy place with my job. And I realized that I actually needed to speak to my wife about it. And my wife's a school counselor and I used to joke that she didn't bring her ears home. So one day I just said, look, I've had the absolute worst day. And as I was leaving work, I realized as the doors opened and the cold air hit me on the face, I thought that is the best part of my day. What am I doing? So I opened myself up to honesty, really, and said, this is how I'm feeling. This, I'm really unhappy. We need to do something about this. And she said, well, I've noticed your, your mood going down, but we haven't really talked about it because we haven't really let me in. So since then, she helped me to kind of work out what I wanted to do. I did some fire walking. I did some kind of confidence building stuff. And then I decided I wanted to work in schools because that's really where I felt that my, my skills and experience led. So that's what I've been doing for 16 or 17 years, delivering enterprise and business workshops. And then along the way, things happened that caused me to think, well, maybe I should talk about this. I had testicular cancer when I was a young man. So at the age of 21, and I got over that and obviously forgot about all that. But then when my daughter was 18, I found a photo of myself with a bloated face and a bald head. And I just thought, actually, oh, I'd forgotten about that. I'd got testicular cancer. It's the most common cancer in young men. I need to talk about this. So I started a session called Life by the Walls. And then in 2012, trigger warning here, my sister was killed by the man that she was living with. And since then, I didn't really know what to do after that. We 
Went to the court case. He was found guilty of murder. He's serving 17 years, a life sentence with a minimum tariff of 17 years. And I didn't really know what to do, whether I should do anything with that. But then I realized that I wanted my sister, Sarah Gosling, to have a legacy from what happened to her. So I made it my mission to kind of find out about domestic abuse, coercive control, unhealthy relationships. And I thought, I wonder if this might be something schools want. And ever since then, my work has kind of moved towards healthy and unhealthy relationships. I do workshops now on helpful and unhelpful masculinity, I like to call it. I also heard it called ethical masculinity the other day, which I really quite like the sound of. And I also um, do talks around coercive control, adult content slipping into childhood and you know, young people not being able to cope with it. In the last couple of years, I've been doing work on empathy, character and kindness, particularly with reference to how we talk to each other, how we talk to ourselves and the, I suppose, invasion of unhelpful and unempathetic language into our daily words, which come from all over the place. I kind of started to realise that if we are not empathetic, firstly with ourselves, but secondly with other people, that allows us to be much more harsh with other people and it allows uncomfortable and unhealthy masculinity to come through. So if we don't see the people that we're talking to or talking about as humans, we don't see their value, then it's much easier for us to kind of denigrate them and also to to kind of attack them. And that's obviously very true on social media, but it's it's become a kind of discourse that's increased, I think, since the Brexit vote. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say the B word. There's a lot, there's a lot of narrative around how our country is supposedly, in inverted commas, being invaded by people that don't deserve to be here. And I think We've, um, as a nation, I think we've reduced our empathy over the last six or seven years. And we can see it in America as well. I think we can see it in many, in many places where social media has really got a foothold. And that certainly that's very true with young people as well. So I really, my job, I see it is to be who I needed when I was younger, which is someone who could shine a light on the world and go, well, actually, yeah, I, I know as a teenager, as a young person, you think you know it all. And that's, we're all like that. But actually, I don't want to tell you you're wrong because that's never helped any of us. It's never stopped us pressing that red button. If someone says, don't press that red button. What I wanted to do is say, look, rather than say you're wrong, I'd just like to say that there are maybe some other viewpoints we could look at, and let's explore some of those. So I see my job shining a spotlight on kindness and empathy, not as being a weakness, but as being an essential part of who we are and how we navigate the world. There you go. That's a really long intro. And I hope that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hope that's given you an insight into why I do what I do. Very helpful intro. And yeah, thank you for, for the raw honesty of the process that led you to be where you're at. It's very important to recognize the process more than just, you know, the, the destination or where, where you are at, at the moment. And I think for me, what's important maybe to delve as I mentioned about the relation between empathy and self-empathy, because as you rightly said, the way we relate to, our, to ourselves, like the kindness, the empathy we show to us, then if it's kind of low in resource, it's also probably low resource towards others when we engage with our partners, our friends. I agree with that. If we're if we're very, very busy feeling sorry for ourselves or we, we feel downtrodden or we feel that life's been unfair to us, and let's face it, at every time, at some point in our life, every single one of us has says, it's not fair, which doesn't always elicit the most sympathy from whoever's listening to that. But I think if if you carry that weight of unfairness with you, then you, I think you're going to find it very difficult to be empathetic and kind towards other people because you're thinking that you should get all the kindness because life's not fair for you. And I, someone once said to me, life's not fair. Well, life's not fair for anybody, which kind of makes it fair in an ironic way. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to see that when you're seeing it from your own point of view in the same way that 
you know, if you're anxious or if you're depressed or if you have mental health issues, it's very difficult to see outside of those clouds that, that maybe cloud your judgment. And I think the same is true of a lack of empathy and kindness. Recently, I was kind of fighting this idea of like, life is unfair, this is unjust. But I think I have to accept that from the get-go, life is unfair. Like, yes, there are privileges in place that I am benefiting from and so on. But eventually, eventually, life was doing its thing. And they just like hit us from the, you know, giving us the curveball. And you're like, where did it come from? It's okay to go to this. And how can I support myself? Yeah. So maybe we can unpack a bit of the as like, why self-empathy is, is important. Where did it kick in for me? I mean, I'm going to take the other point of view. I'm going to ask your question in a roundabout way. As a young man at school, I had that massive it's not fair complex. I had huge privileges. My parents moved. My dad was a copper. My mum worked part-time. So they weren't wealthy, but they moved to get me, get me into the area where I could apply for a grammar school. But my friends, as I saw them, all went to another school. So there was me and, and a, quite a nerdy kid that I didn't really get on with. Me and Adrian went to the grammar school and we were fated for it. Everyone was clapping us and stuff. I hadn't really realised that this was what was going to happen. All I could see when everyone was clapping was all of my friends that I was not going to go to school with anymore. I was leaving primary school and going to a place where I hadn't even known what was going on really. I, I was almost like a passenger in my own life till that point. And I think you are as a 10 or 11 year old, you go, you go wherever things happen. But I hadn't got this massive ambition to go to the grammar, but my, my parents had and I was lucky enough to get in. I did okay till A-level and then college, all my friends went to the local college, but my parents said that I should stay in the grammar school. So I had this massive chip on my shoulder, which just got even bigger. And at that point, obviously, testosterone's kicking in. I was involved in football fighting. I was involved in going to uh, first division games at the time. It meant you had to have the right clothes. I could never afford them. So I started shoplifting and got arrested for that. As I said, my dad was a policeman. So I'd created this kind of toxic vortex around myself. I, I was kicking off at school. When I should have been focusing on my studies, I was at my angriest, really. And I got an E and a U at A-level. And, and it was only that, that damage to my ego that happened, that kind of contradicted all the things I've been told in my life, which is that I was clever but lazy. I'd now behave stupidly and lazy. And at that point, I thought, I actually questioned my own behavior. And I think this is one of the, the reasons I want to speak to young people is because very often we don't think about where our influences come from. So where our influences, why we get angry, you know, sometimes I'll look on Twitter and I'll go realize, oh, it's, it's on the it's on the wrong settings. It's telling me all the stuff I want to be angry about. So I kind of change the settings. But I think as young people, we don't have those filters, either that ability to use the filter or because all our friends are doing the same stuff, we get caught in with that. And, and if that's about being kind and charitable, great. The majority of influences that are out there are us and them, this or that, you know, cool or not cool, ugly or beautiful. You know, it's very, very binary. And I think we can very much get caught into that. I realized at that point that I hadn't been either kind to myself or to anyone around me. I went away to college for three years because I needed to get out of the toxic vortex I created to myself. I couldn't go out of the house without getting into a fight. Someone always wanted to fight us. And because we were trying to be as hard as possible, none of us would back down. And that's one of the things I think about dominance-based masculinity. I'm rambling a bit, but dominance-based masculinity tells you you always need to be at the top of your game, which means that every single area of your life you look at, there's a battle potentially. So to have the best car, to have the best job, to get paid more, to have the, the best partner, the best looking partner, or to be the person that's stronger than everybody else, to be the one that always kind of defends your partner's honor in a pub if someone brushes past them or tries to chat them up those kind of things and i think if if you're based hooked into that kind of 
what a man should be, then that that really is based on a complete lack of empathy. And I think it took me a really long time to realize that. Having cancer really helped in the long term. At the time, it was horrible. I just wanted to get better. I didn't want to kind of admit that I'd had a testicle removed, that I'd had this problem, and that if I'd left it another two weeks, I would be dead because I, I just ignored it. it. took me a really long time to realize, actually, I've been given a bit of a gift here. I now need to look after myself. I need to focus on those around me. and I need to think a bit further forward than just what am I doing this weekend. So I think all of those things conspired to help me understand much more about empathy and caring and kindness. We had children very young. We were the first kind of, of our friends to have kids. So, And I think having that changed the way I viewed nearly everything, the way I viewed my relationship. I rebelled against it a bit. I used to go out quite a lot with some of the younger people from work while my wife was at home with the babies. At one point, I just thought, well, what am I doing? Who, whose life am I building here? I'm trying to be something to somebody else still, which is what I did as a teenager and got me into so much trouble. So let's focus down. Let's keep life a bit more simple. And I'm only going to be able to do that if my wife and I work as a partnership and stop rebelling against it. And I think as men, sometimes we, we kind of still want to be the lad, but we also want to have the accoutrements of what family are. And there's a tension in there about how we how we treat ourselves and how we think we should be treated. I suppose that comes with maturity and it comes with that. The midlife crisis either makes you think, oh my God, I've been so blessed or oh my God, what am I doing? Why have I just bought a sports car or, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think unless we kind of look at ourselves in the hole in an honest way, rather than just plowing on through work and earning the money. Sorry, I'm, I am rambling, but there are times when I think we are made to consider what we're doing. And I think having cancer, having a couple of kids very young when my friends were still going out and having that tension between that and then having this kind of realisation. And that was something that I realised. I was kind of being a passenger in my own life, if you like, which again causes that it's not fair. It kind of reduces your agency and it reduces your ability to feel in control of your life. I think as men, we're taught we have to be in control of everything. But sometimes we don't really back that up with taking action. Sorry, loads of contradicting stuff there. But um, I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? It's complicated as men. It's complicated as all of us, because I think as boys, we're not taught empathy. We're not taught to be kind or empathetic. If we cry, it's, you know, stop crying. Don't be a baby. Come on. Come on. You know, we're taught to have action men and throw them out the window with, you know, with like parachutes on, whereas girls are taught to have babies and look after the babies and pretend cook for us and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying... That happens everywhere, but those stereotypes are strong and they're traditional and they're difficult to break. And, you know, you might be doing your, your best as a parent to confound those stereotypes. I decided I wasn't going to buy either of the girls a little kitchen. It just so happened that our youngest used to play at the kitchen all the time at nursery. She absolutely loved it. And there was nothing that I think we'd done to, to do that. So what are you going to do? You're going to buy a, you're going to buy your kid a gift that actually they like rather than something that, that they're not going to like because you think it's the best thing to do. And then you've got grandparents that might buy boys T-shirts and say, here comes trouble or little heartbreaker and girls T-shirts that say only kindness and, you know, love life dance and that kind of stuff. So we're very subtly encouraging girls to be more empathetic and we're very subtly encouraging boys to be a bit more entitled and a bit less empathetic and kind towards others. From what you mentioned, like when you are honest with yourself and then sit down like either you're 38, but also, you know, having honest conversation with your with your partner. I think self-empathy is also being honest with yourself that, look, for example, I'm hurting right now. Yeah. And that's okay. And I think that's an important thing to, to allow ourselves to be like that. And especially, as you say, as men, allow yourself to grieve to the pain you're going through. 
equally, if you're happy, allow yourself to be happy. Like, don't try to suppress that joy because, uh, again, when we're happy for our friends, that you know, I think that's that's important to sit down and acknowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're right in terms of the subtle messages we instill children with t-shirts or the toys that we encourage them to yeah. to, to play. What we could do to support boys to not that their emotions aren't there, but to give them a language to recognize and use them is to not just say, stop, you know, being, you know, fidgety or stop being angry, but also asking them the questions like what upsets you or what makes you sad and explaining what sad is from the studies that I came across. Sometimes it's, it's easy for families and parents to have the language with girls because they assume that girls will connect with their emotions much easily, which probably is because we just, projected idea that they're more emotional aware than that at that age but probably both are equally aware of their emotions but we don't give the the boys the tools you're right and actually that's something that mark green from um rethinking masculinity he says that we kind of teach it out of boys we teach kindness and empathy and emotions out of boys boys are allowed to be angry they're allowed to cry at maybe we're allowed to cry maybe at three i mean allowed we're allowed to cry, you know, legitimately at three times. And one of those is when our mum or our dad dies, when we have a baby. And maybe the third one is when our team wins or our team loses. And they're about the only times. And I often say to young people, I cry all the time. I cry at Ted Lasso. I, I cry at books. I cry at, if I watch If I watch Disney cartoons, like the old ones, I cry at them. I cry at all stuff. I'm not ashamed of it at all. In fact, I've got a T-shirt that says cry like a man on it. And, I just think we should allow ourselves to cry. It's natural. It's it's good to have emotion. And, you know, when you're worried about... We're quite often in the same kind of conversations around uh, masculinity, and I'm I'm very much a kind of advocate of us talking about the scale of male violence against women and girls. And what, what I get back is anger. I don't get any nuance. I don't get anyone who's willing to say, I hadn't realised that was the scale. I wonder what we could do about it. If you say, well, we need to role model better, we need to open up. And one of the things that we'll often get back is, what about the male suicide rate? Well, I think if we were able to be honest with our emotions more and speak to people and actually reach out for help more, the male suicide rate might slightly take care of itself. It might be, it might come down if we're able to express ourselves and talk about our feelings honestly and openly and say, I'm in trouble here. I'm weakening. I'm feeling sad and I don't really know where to turn with this can you help me? And that's one of the, the most difficult things I think men find to do is say, can you help me? And I've asked for it twice properly in my life. One was when I knackered my A-levels up and I asked my mum to help me to find a college to go to that would get me out of Aylesbury where I grew up. And the reason that was so difficult for her, I think, is because I found out when I was 17 that I'd been adopted. I found out that I, my, my sister, we were both adopted from Guernsey, but at different times from different families. And I used that as a real weapon against both of my parents for ages. It was a real, my life's a lie and all this kind of stuff. And I think, so that was the first time I asked for help. And my mum was good enough to, to realise that she needed to help me. And the second time was, as I explained, when I asked, when I told my wife, look, I'm really struggling. I, I hate everything about my life apart from coming home to you. Can you help me? And I think when we do ask for help, it's very, very rare that someone's going to say, no, I can't help you. But I just think we're not very good at asking for it. And I think that's one of the things that I would say. Be kinder to yourself. You don't have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. That would be a message for me. First of all, be kinder to yourself and ask for help. Ask one of your mates. Just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Just be open and honest and just say, I'm really struggling with this. 
you're right, it's important to be able to acknowledge and get our strength and be vulnerable, but also realize that in that moment when we ask for help, there's a connection that it's between us and the person helping us because we're vulnerable. It helps us to be able to share what we're going through. We don't have to go through whatever we're going through by ourselves. What I realize also by learning about empathy and how I can be more empathic, there's a learning curve that continues to, to happen. I was actually in a moment and I was opening up, I'm going through a difficult time at the moment. And I appreciate it when they said like, oh, it must be tough for you because of this or that. I feel hurt. I feel recognized. I feel that my pain is not just in my perception or in my head. Yeah. But funny enough, in the same conversation, irritated me, to be honest, was that when, again, I was explaining about the difficulties I was going through, like, oh, you'll be fine. For me, that you'll be fine was like, I understand that it comes from a good place and you want to encourage me, but also it felt a bit less empathic because you don't recognize where I'm at. But of course, people have different needs. I wonder if that maybe speaks to us as men's ability to sit with the discomfort of emotions as well. I don't think we're very good at that. I don't think we're very, oh, oh, how do we, how do we deal with this? Oh, this is getting heavy. But sometimes I just want to be heard. I just want to be listened. I don't need your solutions because I'm an adult. I can handle my yeah stuff. <laughs> there, There is a little engineer inside all of us that wants to mend everything. And I think we've always been told that that's our job though. We can fix things. We can mend things. And actually, if people thought like we did, then everything would be sorted. You know, coming from that position of, well, men control everything, so I'm sure we can find a solution. And there you go. Like the person going through this hasn't kind of come through a thousand different responses before even kind of opening up and talking to you about it. And I think you're absolutely right. There's definitely a kind of, oh, either I don't want to talk about this or ah, there's a simple solution to this. You'll be fine or just have another pint. Well, what helps with me is I go out for a walk and I listen to the angriest music I've got. I listen to that on repeat for a couple of hours and then I come back and I'm all right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't work for everybody. Yeah, I totally agree how men respond to, for example, when they're brought issues around, for example, the challenges women have because yeah. of the world that we live in, which is mostly designed for and by men. Absolutely. But at the same time, men just respond like, oh, what about men's mental health? Nobody says that's not an important issue. But we're not talking about that at the moment. Let's focus on the issue at hand that whatever might be, as you say, women's sexual harassment and so on. And let's stick with that. We're not saying every man is doing that, but men have done that. Or we look at the data showing how women unfortunately go through, through more sexual abuse or harassment. And to men happens as well, of course. Yeah. But it's important to listen. And again, when you have empathy, it's like, okay, what is the person? In this case, for example, woman. Yeah. can be a woman of color, can be a trans person and so on. What are they trying to tell me? Let me listen to what they're saying instead of just trying to either counteract, to be inoffensive or come with a solution. This is my learning. It's, it's not easy because the engineer within me will be like, well, wait a minute. You know, it's it's data. You're wrong. <laughs> One of the reasons I started thinking about empathy much more, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine called Graham Goulden who used to work for the Violence Reduction Unit in Scottish Policing. He now mm. also work on bystander training and the reduction of violence generally. And we were having a discussion and I just typed out this tweet and then I thought, actually, I've really tapped into something. I had this idea that men very often, they get an empathy light bulb is the phrase I use. They get this kind of, that suddenly switches them onto empathy when they go, I've got a daughter now. I've got to protect her from the world, men. And if some of us are really honest, young men like some of us used to be entitled touching people inappropriately pushing our luck 
not taking no for an answer, you know, those kind of things. And I think, you know, we can say not all men, but actually we've all been in situations where we've maybe not backed off when someone said, you know, I don't want another drink, leave me alone. Or, you know, our mates have touched someone inappropriately and we've not done anything about it or, you know, those kind of things. And I just think we can't wait for that. That's what I'm trying to get at really is that we need preemptive compassion. And that that's what comes through empathy, that kind of preempt. Oh my, okay, right. This is inappropriate. That person's really uncomfortable. I need to do something about this. I need to speak to my mate. I need to challenge him, but maybe not now, maybe not while he's feeling like this. Maybe I just need to take him to one side and we'll go for a bag of chips or something, chat about this. And that's one of the things that I believe in very passionately that I think if you're going to challenge one of your friends, doing it in front of everybody else is the worst possible thing to do. 100%, 100%. The enemy then becomes you and you've created shame, you've created embarrassment and you've stood him out. So something a friend of mine, Joe, did when I used the C word about a woman, I said, oh, she's a right C word. Everyone dispersed and there was just me and him walking along and he went, Bern, can I just have a word with you? And I said, yeah. And he went, what you just said there about Julia was just so out of order. It's so offensive. And I said, why? It's just a word. And he went, no, no, it's, it's a really offensive word. To use the C word against a woman is just the worst thing you could call a woman. That was kind of my political awakening. And he really helped me to kind of see a different view. And that was my empathy light bulb, and certainly one of them. And that allowed me to see the language I was using, which I hadn't been consciously developing. I hadn't been consciously thinking about the words I was using. I just used that word because she'd really upset me at the time. But I just thought, he's absolutely right. And what my mate Joe was doing, he was drawing a line for me. He was drawing a line and saying, you've just crossed that and I think you need to come back. And also, he was kind of saying, you can be better. That's the most important thing. I took it from a position of love. He didn't do it in front of everybody else. He did it face to face, just me and him. And he said, I want you to be better. And this is how we can do it. To me, it sounds like he did it with empathy. He understood that you were upset with Julian. There wasn't a right response to use the, the language you used. To your point, we don't have to wait until some of us will have a daughter. Yeah. Can't wait for so many years to, to get there. Yeah, and I like that phrase, preemptive compassion. I want us to be able to understand before it happens to us mm. that it's an issue for other people and then to actually think, okay, well, how can I contribute to that or how can I help someone in that situation? I've, sorry, I've jumped in, but that, that's I'm really keen on that phrase not only empathy light bulbs but that preemptive compassion i think we need to instill that in other people and that mm. comes through empathy that comes through understanding it comes through being open to listening to someone else's point of view which goes back to your point you were making just now about let's listen to the person in front of us let's not just bamboozle them or beat them with statistics let's actually listen to their experience the empathy light bulbs that i had especially when it comes to women was i think before having a daughter all of us have a mother yeah Thinking how life is unfair, it's like the treatment that my mom has at times from my dad wasn't always fair. No. And then it kind of made me connect to her and the things that she was going through. Well, wait a minute, this is not okay. And I can see this is causing her emotional pain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's very difficult for us to be very empathetic with our parents when we're young. We all go through, I mean, it's a natural thing, isn't it? That going through that kind of rebellion phase, it's built into all of us is built into horses and the way young male horses compete for the bragging rights within the herd the matriarch in the herd the top mare gets everyone together and says look if these guys don't behave themselves they're out and they're on their own because horses are herd animals they either chance it on their own or they come back into the herd and go okay i'll modify my behavior it's not so kind of obvious or, <laughs> or so kind of 
genetically predetermined in humans because we can ignore our genetic kind of signals. But a lot of the time we are rebelling against stuff. We're rebelling against authority as part of our adultification process. The problem with that is that we kind of put layers of other understanding on that and it, it stops us being empathetic because we then we think like we're fighting for ourselves. And I think we're taught that individuality that you have to be like this to survive. But actually we are social beings. We can't push ourselves out of everybody else because if we push our everyone out from in front of us then we're completely alone and that doesn't work for us either so there's there's a tension there and i think it it, it does happen that we need an event that makes us reconsider how we've been programmed and i think you can't have these massive events all the time and i just think we need to be able to recognize them when they happen to us in terms of recognizing when they're happening at different times and different places and cycles in our life to take it a bit more practical we are aware that maybe we need to work on this, but we don't have to wait for the light bulb. But what can we do as young men's boys, as adult men as well, we can do to teach ourselves self-empathy and then extend that love, empathy, uh, forgiveness to my friends and those around me. What, what are some of the tips or some of the things maybe you've done and it worked for, for you? There's an awful lot we still need to do <laughs> to help to, you know, we're nowhere near equality. So when people say feminism has gone too far, it, it makes my blood boil, but then I kind of will kind of counteract that with some statistics. My tips, actually think about how you're feeling because we are, I wouldn't say we're encouraged to, but I think it's acceptable that male expressions of emotion are generally anger. We'll smash things up or we'll go out and we'll drive fast or we'll, the danger with that is not only do we injure ourselves, but we injure other people and hurt other people. We scare other people. Talk about coercive control. The way a lot of coercive control happens is about making people feel uncomfortable and terrified. And men do that with their cars. They drive fast or erratically or dangerously. So I suppose my first thing is, okay, maybe anger isn't the actually emotion I'm feeling, but anger is what we men use to mask our true feeling. It allows us to kind of to express ourselves and then people leave us alone as well because they're a bit scared of us. So that has two things. It, re it repels people and it also puts a barrier around us. First of all, am I really angry or am I upset about something? If I'm upset, sit quietly with it and work out what it is you're upset with. Some of those things also cause us to go off and get drunk. That's not massively helpful either because you're still carrying that anger. And actually, alcohol is a disinhibitor. It reveals who we are. It doesn't change who we are. It reveals who we are. So if we're in a bad mood, it's going to make us in a worse mood. How we can teach ourselves to have that emotional literacy, have the language to describe what upsets me, what bothers me. Yeah. I think it's important to be able to allow ourselves how to feel or to feel, we need to do a bit of emotional literacy education. You're 100% right. And that's what I was saying. And when we first got together, which was 30 odd years ago, we didn't used to have arguments because Val would say, what's wrong? And I just couldn't like you. I just could not find the words because I didn't have the emotional kind of grabs really to work out what it was I was feeling. I don't know why, why that is. Maybe that's, I mean, my mum and dad were not the greatest communicators. In fact, I shared a room with my dad between 14 and 18, which is really weird when you look at it. But they, that started as an argument. He moved out and never moved back. And then they got divorced. So they weren't very good at communicating. So my kind of my emotional literacy was really poor. And going to a boys school, it didn't get developed any further. And I was involved in all that macho stuff, which was my outlet. My outlet was violence and stealing clothes and being the best dressed and those kind of things. So I think it, it's very difficult. And I, that really resonated with me then what you just said, that it is really difficult for young men to access how they're feeling because very often we don't know. Very often we have no idea. 
society, stereotype and whatever allows us to be angry or allows us to be quiet. Neither of those things are that helpful. <laughs> so I think, yeah, first of all, just sit with the feeling you've got. Don't do anything drastic. Don't storm out. Don't slam the door and break the, break the glass in it. Don't smash the telly off the wall. Don't jump in your car. Don't open, you know, six cans of special brew and down them in one go. Just take some time to actually be uncomfortable with it and actually try and work out what this turmoil is and don't give it anger as a label as your first response. I was listening to Fern Brady's book about a strong female character. She said that she read through a lot of prison reports and parole reports and she said the majority of people in there are not because they're career criminals. They're in there because they made one terrible decision or they did something they weren't planning to do and it's changed their entire life. And I think that's so true for so many of us. Most of the time we don't plan to do that, but they're the things that change our lives for the worst generally. One of the things, be empathetic with yourself, listen to your emotions and treat yourself with a bit of kindness. No one cares about you saving your face. You know, that that's, I think, a lot of the reasons we do the things we do because we've built up this ego and this image of ourselves as being strong, as being whatever, that you're not being weak. And I think that the danger of that is that then that kind of almost forces us to behave in a particular way that we're not planning. So I think as men, acknowledge your feelings, sit with them and don't do anything too spontaneous. Just sit and think about how you're feeling and what that means for you and try and work that out before you react too severely. Love those three key points. The only thing that I would add is when you sit with your feelings, go through the discomfort and then engage with them, but also maybe if it needs to, share them with a mate, share them with your partner, share them with your family, the close ones. We're so concerned about that preserving our status, our image. But at the end of the day, the relationship is more important than I have, for example, if I've been unpleasant to a friend, the relationship between me and him or her is more important than my ego. Yeah, and I think kindness then needs to start with ourselves because if we're very harsh on ourselves, then that, that doesn't help us. I often say male violence harms us all. And, and if our reaction is anger, then that anger starts within. That kind of violence to ourselves and our soul is not, not really helpful to anybody because then that builds and builds and builds and you're much more likely to kind of push that outwards as well. So let's stop male violence by thinking about the violence we do to ourselves, first of all, and then actually analysing whether we really want to do that or not. Because very often we're programmed to do it by whatever man box culture as mark green calls it let's just take some time and just think about who we really are and how does it serve us to present ourselves in that way because very often it doesn't we absorb these ideas these feelings these thoughts these shoulds that come from outside based on someone else's duty and someone else's vision of what you should be and how you should behave with other people and we just take those on hook line and sinker quite a lot of the time and we don't ever stand out and go actually why am I like this? In fact, one of the things I, I do when I'm working on masculinity with young people is to say, when do we ever stop and consider why we do or think the things we do? That's a powerful one. It's really powerful. And when do we do it? Almost ever. <laughs> but most of the time when something goes wrong. Yeah. When something goes significantly wrong for us, enough to make us think, look at where I am. What led me to this? And very often, that's the only time we really stop and think, why am I thinking this way? And how is this helping me? Listening to someone like Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, I don't know whether you've come across him. Very sweary, entrepreneur, huge across social media from the very start. Really talks about kindness and empathy, but he does it in a quite an aggressively sweary way. He, he really talks about the way we speak to ourselves and the way we speak to other people. 
why would anyone want to work with you or be with you or be near you if you're constantly going to be aggressive and beating yourself up or beating other people up verbally or physically? You've got to be empathetic because we all make mistakes. The only person that doesn't make mistakes is the person that doesn't do anything. So I think we need to be be able to kind of reflect on ourselves, but also just be aware that we're going to make mistakes as well and not do our heads in with that and just go, okay, I made a mistake and actually put your hand up and go, yeah, I really shouldn't have done that. And then reflect on why we did it and then try and not do it next time. We're imperfect beings. Exactly. For me, the light bulb moment when I realized why self-empathy is so important was when I was in a counseling session and we're just talking about the voice we have in our heads that are really harsh. A coach or a friend will talk to you the way you talk to yourself. Would you still be friends with them? And I was like, hell no. <laughs> Why do you do that to yourself? It was like, fair point. I then for me, it was like, okay, even when I do a mistake, doesn't mean you have to have to punch yourself in the face, do you? Exactly. Or punch somebody else in the face. <laughs> I saw a meme the other day and it really struck home for me. It said, the way you speak to your children becomes the voice in their heads. I'm not saying that that was part of your parent, your, your parents' responsibility, but I think that's really true because we can all remember things that have been said to us. Maybe it's an offhand comment. Maybe it's something that someone says on repeatedly, but that does become our internal monologue or it certainly becomes the attitude that we treat ourselves with based on something that someone said to us a number of times before. Like that thing that I was lazy. I was clever, but lazy. I was told that loads and loads of times didn't change my behavior. The only thing that changed my behavior was realizing I'd behaved stupidly, although I was clever and I'd been lazy. It takes something, I think, that affects our ego significantly enough for us to think, actually, I don't need any of that stuff. That was really unhelpful. It takes an event or constant thinking. And again, you know, you, you mentioned counseling and you said it quite quickly. And I think I recognize that in you. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not attacking you, but I'm just thinking, I think it's still quite unusual for us to say, to admit, to going to counselling, to talking and having therapy and stuff. We had some couples counselling early on in our relationship because we hit a couple of rocky patches. And I think it was so important to me. I also had some counselling as well on my own. And I think it made a huge difference because we don't often allow ourselves the time to think through or talk through what we're actually going through. And it's in those sessions that we actually go, oh, okay, that uh, that's why I okay, that's where I've got that from and that's why I sometimes do this and that's okay. And once you realize that, you can actually either choose to ignore it and carry on the way you're doing, which may be self-destructive, or you can choose to be different. And there's another, I suppose that's a self-empathy light bulb that you get through through counseling and therapy and, and talking cures that allows you to self-reflect and go, okay. First of all, I wasn't aware that I said quickly, but I think you're right that counseling for me allow me that space to reflect. Yeah. And it still is. I'm enjoying it. And that's why I'm, I keep doing it because I, I've seen the benefits Yeah, uh, on myself and those around me. To kind of wrap things up, the ideas you have about what we can practically do to work on, on ourselves and be self-empathic. But a few things that I did ask my guest, one is what stereotype about men you dislike the most? I know it's a tricky one. I mean, it, it's a huge one. But I think we need to question this idea of we are starting to do it with what's happened recently with certain influences and the effect they're having on young men. But that idea of dominance-based masculinity means you need to control and be in control over 
a female partner. I think that's one of the most dangerous things that we're still talking about, which is reinforced by, and the report that came out about porn use and a number of sexual assaults where young people have been involved, teenagers have been involved, using the language of porn to, to denigrate and abuse women in the relationships. I think we really need to to challenge the idea of dominance-based masculinity. As long as we equate strength with dominance, then I think we're going to be in a real mess. And particularly women are going to be disproportionately affected by that behavior. So I think we need to have a really open conversation about what masculinity is, what healthy, ethical masculinity is, because we are stronger than women in the main. And how do we learn to not abuse that power? How do we learn to not abuse that systemic power that's built up over years? As you said before, men have created every system and men are largely perpetuating that system because men generally benefit from it. So let's kind of start opening debate about dominance-based masculinity. Let's actually admit that not being in control is okay. So there you go. Such an important point you made about dominance and how to deconstruct the idea of, as you said at the start about dominance and how we always have to be on top and manage everything. It's such a short-sighted perspective because we're young for a certain amount of time. Everything is temporary. So <laughs> That's it, very true. Our dominance as well. Well, us trying to keep that, that level of dominance all the time is, first of all, exhausting and it will not take us too far. It will actually take us to a rabbit hole that will be destructive. And that's the thing we don't understand because, yes, when we're young, we are full of testosterone, of energy, and we think we can control the world. When it takes a few years to, as you say, break a leg, break a finger, or yeah, yeah. realize that actually how fragile we are as human beings. Yeah, every one of us is. But with that power comes responsibility. You can't just engage with that power frivolously because it will be destructive as we want from our leaders to behave responsibly and be accountable and not just use the power for their own selfish reasons. Why don't we do that as well as men? This is my parallel between current affairs and our discussion around yeah. masculinity. Oh, there, there's some there's some amazing parallels at the moment about people using their power for not necessarily the collective good Final question. It would be great to hear what are some of the traits you believe are essential for, for healthy masculinity? This is good. I mean, we've talked a lot about empathy. That's number one. Imagining what it would be like to be somebody else. I think we need to reduce our level of defensiveness. When someone says something that we're uncomfortable with, it's not an attack on us necessarily. We don't need to go into attack mode. We can sometimes listen. And I think listening as, as men is, is a skill that we're not that good at. We need to forgive and the third one is sarcasm, because I think if you take yourself too seriously, that is another recipe for constant conflict, because you're looking for somewhere to be offended. What's that about? What did you say? All of those things. And I think we need a bit more. We need a sense of humor. Life's hard enough without creating battles where they don't exist. So I think we need to take ourselves a little less seriously as men. It doesn't make you look like a wimp if someone laughs at you. If you laugh back, that's the best way to break down barriers and open conversations. So they're, they're the main ones. I think we need to dismantle our own egos before we can really challenge any of this stuff. Yeah, we need to start somewhere. That's easy coming from an old man with a grey beard. It's been really good. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thanks very much, love. Thanks so much for listening. I hope it gave you some fruitful thought on how you can show more kindness to yourself and understanding. 
for me, the main takeaways are ask yourself the hard questions if you want to change, but also give compassion dancers a return. And the next episode is about nature, adventure, and facing adversity with no other than James Ray, the CEO of Extreme Character Challenge. Until then, stay safe and keep listening to Mentality Podcast.